Chapter 14, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 14, Part 2 Art and Music. America has developed within the past half century a school of sculpture which has won recognition both at home and abroad, though a visit to the national capital and to the public squares of some of the larger cities would scarcely induce such an opinion. Many of her sculptors have been educated under Italian influences, but have drawn their inspiration rather from the antique than the modern Italian school. Some who stand foremost at home today have not enjoyed the benefit of foreign instruction, and their works, consequently, possess more of the flavor of the soil, so to speak, than do those which have been executed in strict accordance with the academic rules transmitted from antiquity. It is possible that these may develop in time into a purely American school of sculpture, which shall be recognized and take its place as such in the art history of the world. In the sister art, architecture, Though America's brief century of existence has not brought to light any transcendent genius like him who created the Taj Mahal or elevated the Dome of St. Peter's, there has been sufficient advancement to meet the requirements of the country. American architecture in the past cannot be said to have had any individuality, but to have been rather the result of external influences. The reflection of the art developed in Europe through centuries of growth. Like all imitations, the imported style was generally exaggerated and often applied to uses for which it was never intended. Thus, a half-century ago, the Greek style was the prevailing fashion in not only public buildings like the custom houses of New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, but also churches, town halls, and even dwelling homes were constructed in the semblance of classic temples. In the suburbs of any of the eastern towns may still be seen white-painted wooden dwellings with pretentious porticos of Ionic or Corinthian columns, combined with the absurdity of modern windows and green blinds. The Greek style in time gave way to the Gothic, and the classic temple was superseded by a nondescript building modeled or supposed to be modeled after the medieval cathedral. Some good churches were built in this style, the most successful one being Trinity Church in New York, erected in 1840 through 1845. But as the Greek style had been before, it was soon applied to uses utterly foreign to its purposes, and all kinds of buildings, including dwelling houses, were decorated with Gothic gables, pinnacles, and battlements. This fashion in turn had its day, and in time the Gothic was restricted mostly to ecclesiastical edifices, while domestic architecture went through a variety of transformations involving all the styles known to the ages. In some of the larger cities, New York especially, the exigencies of space gave rise to narrow dwellings built in uniform blocks, generally of brick, faced with brown sandstone, from which they were called brownstone fronts. Some of these long blocks of narrow dwellings, which caused the Grand Duke Alexis to remark that the Americans live in bins, are really very handsome, especially in Fifth Avenue, New York, a street of city residences unequaled elsewhere in the world. During the past two decades, a change has gradually been wrought in the style of city dwellings, and the uniform Italian brownstone fronts 
have been superseded by a variety of styles, each building having a marked individuality which distinguishes it from its neighbors. Many of these new residences will bear favorable comparison, considered architecturally, with any in Europe, and in internal conveniences and modern appliances have not their equal anywhere. This is as true of the dwellings built of the late years in other places as of those in New York, and the day is not far distant when every considerable town in the United States will have palatial residences rivaling those of the old world. The architecture of municipal and mercantile buildings in America is in a great degree like domestic architecture, the reflection of foreign examples, modified, of course, to some extent by new requirements. Some of the more pretentious structures, though perhaps amenable to criticism as works of art, are notable examples of their kind and will bear comparison with similar buildings in Europe. The capital at Washington, though displeasing to Mr. Ferguson's critical eye, is yet a noble building and notwithstanding its shortcomings, better adapted for legislative uses than the British Houses of Parliament. And the later public buildings at Washington, especially the French Renaissance structures, for the use of the War and State Departments, are unexcelled. Many of the state capitals, notably those of New York, Connecticut, Ohio, and other western states, are worthy of any country. In mercantile architecture, the Americans are abreast of, if not in advance of the rest of the world. The stores or shops of all of the larger cities are equal to any in European capitals, and the magnificent structures erected by insurance, banking, and other corporations are fit for the uses of even the merchant princes of democracy. There is nothing elsewhere in the world to compare with these structures. Buildings equally fine are to be found in that great western city, Chicago. One block there has thirteen stories, the highest hardly less elaborate in decoration or less perfect in its appointments than the lowest. Indeed, the rental of offices high up is greater than that of those nearer earth. Lifts shoot skyward with a swiftness that leads the unaccustomed aeronaut to think he has left part of his anatomy on the ground floor, and they drop down again with equal rapidity. The thirteenth story is thus made as accessible as the third, while it possesses the advantages of purer air and less noise. Music, heavenly made, early visited America, but finding no congenial abiding place among the sons of toil who were battling with the wilderness, returned to quieter scenes to await the cessation of the struggle. She has now taken up her permanent abode in the Republic, and finds herself at home even in the far west, among the roughest scenes the continent can show. The history of music in America is a record of spirited enterprises and discouraging failures, alternating with almost rhythmic regularity. Artists of the first order, like Malibran, made a temporary success even fifty years ago, but it is only recently that a regular opera has been established in any American city. Some of the most successful performances took place in New York half a century ago, yet at periods it was almost impossible to get together half a dozen fiddles. A German who visited New York in 1828 wrote, The orchestras are very bad indeed as bad as it is possible to imagine, and incomplete. Sometimes they have two clarinets, which is a great deal. Sometimes there is only one first instrument. Of bassoons, oboes, trumpets, and kettle drums, one never sees a sight. 
However, once in a while a first bassoon is employed. Only one oboist exists in North America, and he is said to live in Baltimore. In spite of all this incompleteness, they play symphonies by Haydn and grand overtures, and if a gap occurs, they think this is only of passing importance, provided it rattles away again afterwards. It is a self-understood custom that the leader, with his violin, takes part in every solo. Hence, one never hears a solo played alone by one person. This is probably done in order to get a fuller sound. This was three years after Garcia's Italian opera appeared in New York, and several amateur musical clubs had long been in existence. The practical and unromantic character of the English people long delayed acceptance of the opera in Britain. As Addison amusingly says, there is nothing that has more startled our English audience than the Italian recitative at its first entrance upon the stage. People were wonderfully surprised to hear generals sing the word of command, and ladies delivering messages and music. Our countrymen could not forbear laughing when they heard a lover chanting out a ballet d'eau, and even the superscription of a letter set to a tune. The famous blunder in an old play of Enter a King and Two Fiddlers, Solas, was no longer an absurdity, when it was impossible for a hero in a desert or a princess in her closet to speak anything unaccompanied with musical instruments. In America the same cause continued to operate at a much later date. A native critic has written a passage about his countrymen similar to the above. Speaking of the opera-goers of fifty years ago, he says, If the inquisitive American looked in a critical way at the intellectual meaning of the Italian opera, he found little to satisfy his mind. On the contrary, he found it ridiculous. He succeeded at getting at the plot of the fantastic libretto to see an actor making such a fuss about killing himself or anybody else on account of some unsuccessful love affair, but who could not accomplish his bloody design on account of too much singing. He wondered why two lovers, having a secret to tell each other, should go about shouting it out in endless repetitions and endless cadenzas. He became impatient with a troop of soldiers, thundering ferocious threatening war songs, but who, having so much to sing, could not move a step from their posts. All these things puzzled him, were a mystery to him, and annoyed and bewildered him. They, on the whole, appeared to him much ado about nothing. Viewed in this matter-of-fact way, the opera does seem absurd, and we need not wonder that it long received scant recognition by our practical, long-headed people, who ask the why and wherefore of everything which claims their approval. At the present day, however, opera is flourishing like an indigenous plant, and New York supports two great opera houses, besides numerous theaters for opera comique, etc. Every important city has its opera house. Miss Nielsen found in a young western town the best building for sound she had ever known. Jeffrey's American Guide to Opera Houses and Theaters contains particulars of nearly 4,000 such buildings distributed all over the continent. Opening it at random, I find amongst hundreds of others the following. Centralia, on Chicago, Kansas City, and Denver short line of the CNA and West St. Louis and Pacific Railroads. Population 1,500. Threlkeld's Opera Hall. Good stage and scenery. Terms reasonable. People's Theater. First class stage and scenery. Stage 25 feet by 48 feet. Piano. 
rent twenty dollars, etc. Take Oshkosh, away out in Wisconsin, two hundred miles from Chicago, with a population of twenty-two thousand. New Opera House, stage forty-two by seventy feet, seats one thousand one hundred. Turner House, stage thirty by fifty, seats eight hundred. Wacker Hall, thirty by fifty-four, seats one thousand one hundred. Here is Paris, Texas. Babcock Opera House, seats one thousand. Paris Opera House, seats four hundred and fifty. Idaho was a wilderness a few years ago, as was Montana. Now I see Eagle Rock, Idaho, with a total population of only seven hundred, has Chamberlain Hall with organ, seats six hundred. Glens Hall, seats three hundred. Butte City, Montana, has New Opera House, seats eight hundred. Thomas Amphitheater, seats one thousand five hundred. Grand Opera House seats 1,000, but its population is 10,000, so that it does not rival Eagle Rock, with its 700 population and temples of the Muses to seat 900. The theaters and opera houses of the principal cities in America are, of course, much superior to those in Europe, because they were built recently and have improvements unthought of years ago. Besides, the greater wealth of the country justifies greater expenditure upon everything. Musical societies are found in every western town of importance. Milwaukee, with a history of only half a century, had its Musique Verin 36 years ago. In 1851, this enterprising club performed the creation, the seasons, parts of the Messiah, and parts of Rossetti's Jesus in Gethsemane. Every year since, it has performed works of like character. The city has been a center from which musical culture has radiated throughout the Northwest. Cincinnati is another such center. Situated midway between the eastern cities and New Orleans, it has since early days been specially benefited as the calling place of itinerant operatic and dramatic companies. St. Louis, Louisville, Chicago, Indianapolis, Detroit, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Denver, San Francisco, New Orleans are all prominent examples of western cities in which music is generally cultivated. My experience in the two lands leads me unhesitatingly to accord the palm to the old home for vocal music. There is no society in the Republic to compare with those which delight the masses with vocal music in the monarchy. To hear one of the best choirs in Britain sing an oratorio is one of the greatest delights. Their voices seem smoother, and above all, the enunciation is perfect. The American voice is thin to begin with, the effect of climate, I fear, and to this is added the abominable practice of slurring over or cutting off troublesome syllables. The American woman is the most intelligent, entertaining, and most agreeable in the world. If she had her English sister's voice in enunciation, she would be perfect. But these she has not. There is a snippiness about her words which follows her even in oratorio. The men, of course, being more deliberate of speech, are not such great sinners in this respect. America still has much to learn from the parent land in vocal music. I wish she would begin to take lessons soon. On the other hand, America leads Britain in instrumental music, probably owing to the large infusion of the German element with which it is blessed. I have heard several competent foreign musicians pronounce the Thomas Orchestra superior to that of Richter in London, or to any other orchestra in Europe and I have sufficient faith in this opinion to challenge the best London orchestra to a contest. 
let us have an international orchestral trial our performers going to london to play upon alternate nights with richter's fine band and theirs coming to new york next season for the return trial to excel in instrumental music would be another feather in the cap of democracy even to prove a worthy second to richter's orchestra would not discredit us the cause of music could not but be benefited by the friendly family match this year witnesses an ambitious attempt to found a national conservatory of music which may rival the academy founded last year in britain the enterprise is in excellent hands and promises to give the republic a new institution of which it may justly be proud a school has already been started and pupils are being received it is held that the time has passed when the gifted sons and daughters of the republic should find it necessary to go abroad for the highest musical instruction even more daring is the attempt to produce american opera which is now being made by these enthusiastics of the national school of music so far its success has surprised the public the operas are of course the work of foreigners but they are sung in english or must we not begin to call it the american language oh said a distinguished lady to another the other evening as she listened to the opera in her own language it's so queer to understand the language of opera isn't it i always did dear was the response sooner or later the new idea is bound to conquer the republic will produce not only a national school of music but in time develop a national music itself for it is impossible that so numerous and so rich a people and one so unusually fond of music should long remain without an institution of the highest character for musical culture we hail this present effort therefore with great pleasure and commend it to the support of the american people upon whom and not upon any governmental aid it must fortunately depend the material progress of the republic is not the only progress made during the triumphant march of the democracy in art and in music the nation is advancing with a rapidity which belies the assertion that the tendency of democracy is to materialize a people and give it over to sordid thoughts that the unrestrained exercise of personal liberty ends only in the accumulation of dollars republicanism does not withhold from life the sweetness and light which mainly makes it worth living hard unremitting toil quickly seeks appropriate relaxation the history of music and art in america is in miniature their history throughout the world first came struggles with nature hard-fought battles with corresponding adaptation of temperament then with victory came leisure and human nature was moulded into harmony with its milder conditions and then as dryden says at last divine cecilia came inventress of the vocal frame the sweet enthusiast from her sacred store enlarged the former narrow bounds and added length to solemn sounds with nature's mother wit and arts unknown before unless the greatest and best of the race are wholly at fault in their estimate of the influence exerted upon men by art and music we may accept the taste for these with which the democracy can safely be credited as an augury of promise life in the republic is being rapidly refined the race for wealth ceases to be so alluring ostentation in dress or living is bad form in due time fashion may decree that its devotees must be neither loud nor extravagant music and art create the taste for the most refined not for the coarse expression of our surroundings 
it is now certain that in love of art and music the democracy even today is not behind the monarchy and evidence is not wanting that it is entering more and more into and elevating year after year not only the few but the great masses which make up the national life of the republic end of chapter fourteen part two art and music